0: Don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the
1: We Croak Podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall, And you know how you're listening to a podcast right now, so you probably know that some of the most popular podcasts out there are about... The serial killers, and people who committed terrible crimes. Well, our guest on today's podcast is Elizabeth Minick, and she is a professor of moral philosophy at Queen's College, and she's written this book called The Evil of Banality on the Life and Death Importance of Thinking. And it makes the case that our preoccupation with these intensive evils of serial killers and whatnot forms a certain sort of ideas, um, categories of what evil is that really doesn't prepare us for how the biggest evils in this world are perpetuated and done by large cooperating groups of people. She uses the example of the Holocaust, of course, and other genocides, and just makes the point in slavery that uh, all of these needed huge groups of cooperating people from accountants to metal workers to engineers and architects. Many of them, most of them, knew what was happening to some capacity and just had to be reliable and show up to work, and that that capacity still plagues us today. So we're going to lean right into it today, talk about, you know, what matters most, how to be clear and protect ourselves from, you know, some of the worst things that can happen and really update our ideas about what evil is and how it happens in this world. Um, Once again, uh, if you're enjoying this podcast, and this is a very special episode, do go to our Patreon page and support, subscribe, tell your friends. I think these conversations are really important. We want as many uh, people listening as possible, especially to this one. So without further ado, here we go. Thank you, Elizabeth Minick. It's so great to have you on the We Croak podcast.
2: It's wonderful to be here, Hansa. Thank you for inviting me.
1: So I read your book, *The Evil of Banality*, and I thought it was really interesting. One, because we like to talk about the things people don't talk about enough on this podcast, starting with death. And mm-hmm. you know, here's a book about uh, you know death on a really extensive scale of you know all the way up to genocide and why it happens, how it happens and hopefully how to avoid it. Um, those are really big questions. What led you to taking on some of these these biggest questions of life?
2: May I say first that I entirely appreciate your goal of inviting people to think with you and each other about the things we don't think about. <laughs> I, do, I completely agree that that's very important. And that's a lead into how I became involved in this project. When people talk about a number of origin stories always for any significant piece of your life and work. One is that when people talk about the Holocaust, about genocide, about the horrors that in my book I call extensive evils, the ones that last for a long time and take a lot of people to do their work and harm a great many people, but also have a great many perpetrators and enablers, one of the things that we say is It's unthinkable, unspeakable horrors, unthinkable evil. And I'm a philosopher and I'm probably a philosopher because of what I'm about to say rather than the other way around, um, philosophy having caused it. But when people start talking about things as being unthinkable and unspeakable, I get simultaneously anxious and curious I get anxious because it seems to me that if we can't think about something and won't speak about something or feel that we can't ever, I mean, I understand in the moment not being able to, but if we continue to say this is unspeakable and unthinkable, we're we're abdicating too much, uh, obviously responsibility, an effort to avoid such things happening, an effort to comprehend, which is not the same as Accepting it all—it's even an effort at resistance in some ways, because what we don't comprehend has power over us. It it can it can move us. It can affect us without our having a chance to say no, ask questions of it, to try and understand it in some way that keeps it from just driving us. Um, so I get on many levels uncomfortable, unto anxious. As I said, when people say something is unthinkable. And when we say it's unspeakable, it seems to me we are isolating ourselves from what we need, profoundly need, as human beings, um, which is communion with other humans and the world around us, in this case, those specifically other humans. Um, We make sense of things with each other. If we're not speaking about something, it, again, has enormous potential and often actual power over us because we don't. We're not exploring what it means. Um, What it means is always more and other than what it means to us alone. When we confer meaning on something all by ourselves in private, it's generally what other people call madness. Somebody once said about what used to be called insanity, that somebody was insane, that what that meant was simply that somebody was making sense of the world in their own way. They were making sense of it, it's just that it communicated with no one else. So The unthinkable, the unspeakable about some things that happen and some things that humans do um, made me determined to think and speak about them. And evil is on that list.
1: So that's a clarion call to uh, to lean in here to the uncomfortable territory of, you know, how the biggest sort of evil and suffering and harm happens And, of course, the title of your book, The Evil of Banality, kind of comes from a Hannah Arendt quote, which is the opposite, the banality of evil. And you actually knew Hannah Arendt. She was a teacher and sounds like also a mentor to you, a really important uh, historian and philosopher who thought about the Holocaust a lot. And I was wondering if you could just tell the story of how you met her and how she would come to shape you know, some of your philosophical investigations since.
2: Yes, and I'm, thank you for asking that. I said a few minutes ago that there are always numerous origin stories for anything we, we give big chunks of our lives, lives to. And, of, of course, there is an origin story for a book called The Evil of Banality. As you say, it was The Banality of Evil, which is part of a title of Hannah Arendt's book, Eichmann in Jerusalem a report on the banality of evil, um, which she wrote in the 60s when she covered the trial of Adolf Eichmann in in Jerusalem. Hannah Arendt was a a philosopher, um, you said a historian, that's interesting. She, She did write a book called The Origins of Totalitarianism very soon after the end of World War II, very soon after it. It's a very large and detailed and thoughtful book that's had great effect in the world. Um, uh, trying to understand what happened, but she really did write it as a historian. There's a great deal in there about events that came together in this, this conflagration across Europe that was so terrifying on in, in so many levels. And she continued to write as a philosopher thinking in and about the world. I talked about comprehension earlier. She once said there are people who can't live without... Acting. She said, I can live very well without acting, but I can't live at all without trying to comprehend anything that happens. So she was a curious, very, very thoughtful, exceedingly intelligent woman who had been studying philosophy in Germany. She Ger- was German and Jewish as the Nazis came to power. She also had extraordinarily good political judgment time and again in her life. She understood what was happening sooner and more astutely than other people and was able to do something, in this case what she did was leave (laughs) early enough from Germany and went to Paris and did a variety of of what she called social work, and then she came to the United States. From the United States, she, in the 60s, uh, got herself sent to Jerusalem to cover the trial of Adolf Eichmann, who was called the engineer of the final solution. Um, he had fled at the end of the war, gone to Argentina, as many Nazis did, and he was captured and brought back to stand trial, which is a quite fascinating story into itself. Of course, this is a, an effort to have a trial for crimes against humanity. This is a category that <laughs> what court tries crimes against humanity? Uh, what laws were there on the books? We don't have a world government. Uh, governments usually have, are the source of law. So all very intense and important event. And Hannah Arendt got herself sent by uh, Mr. Sean, the legendary Mr. Sean of the New Yorker, editor of the New Yorker, to cover the trial. And she sat in the courtroom and she read transcripts as Eichmann was being questioned. Everybody knew what he had done. He knew what he had done. Everyone knew he was profoundly guilty. So the trial was as much as anything an exploration of the detail by asking him questions um, and have people have a chance to testify too, to have their day in court as we say um, survivors and families uh, who had lost huge numbers of people in in the genocide had a chance to testify so she's listening to him and to go straight to the banality of evil what was confusing and troubling and intriguing about him led her, as she said, to find herself with this concept of the banality of evil. Because here was this man who showed no signs of being possessed by great hatred, being uh, some kind of moral monster who gave visible, audible, physical signals to the world of quite how uh, horrible he was. His deeds were indubitably horrible. He was an engineer trying to commit genocide to murder over 6 million people. It's a logistical task of great complexity. And he made it possible, uh, not all by himself, but those were his skills. So monstrous deeds. And he, of course, knew perfectly well what he was doing. Uh, No question about that. So monstrous deeds, planning day after day after day, how to affect and do effectively the murder of 6 million plus people. Makes you want to say unthinkable. <laughs> um, she, she's listening to him, watching him. And one of the things she said about him was he had a constant struggle with the language. He just wasn't very good at speaking. He had, he would say silly things that. Obviously, weren't what he was trying to say, and he couldn't quite manage. At one point, he apologized to the judges and said, excuse me, I only speak bureaucraties. Um, And he said foolish things. And he said sort of sappy, emotional, moral things. Um, When he spoke about, he liked elevating words, as he used to say, which is the kind of things you find in terrible greeting cards. Um wasn't that he didn't speak about moral issues and so forth, but he did so in cliches and he would be moved by the cliches. So she's watching something. She said it was hard not to think of him as a buffoon. And this was a man who had done horrific things. So she found herself with this concept of the banality of evil.
1: So basically, when you say buffoon, he just wasn't a thinker. He never really thought through what he was doing. He just did it because he was asked to without much hatred or even caring about the mission. It was just his careerism. What 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 drove him?
2: Well, that was part of her question. It certainly was part of my question when I got to the question of the evil of banality. What she said about him you just c- captured beautifully, um, which is that he had only one extraordinary quality and that was an astounding thoughtlessness. And then she said the second one was most likely that he had a, an unusual interest in his own uh, advancement. When he was being questioned concerning what he had done afterwards for this trial, he kept talking off the point which, about reasons why he wasn't promoted. He's talking to somebody who's interviewing him about his own crimes <laughs> against humanity, and he's still complaining about not being promoted. So what you have is a someone who was... Um, I found myself saying in my book when I was working on him is that he was radically out of touch. His mind was working. He was solving problems. He wasn't mindless. it wasn't His mind wasn't paralyzed. <laughs> not at all. He was effective at what he did. But what he was not doing was being what we mean by thoughtful, uh, reflecting, being aware of what he was doing. The kind of thinking that we do when you, you, you know, sometimes you come to and you think, ah, what am I doing? What did I just do? I didn't mean to say that. You know, I think I hurt that person. Oh dear, I'm not doing this task very well. That kind of self-monitoring, which is of course our capacity for con- to have a conscience. Um, and that led Hannah Arendt to pose her question, um, which I think sums up what she was asking Uh, by the time she had her concept and thereafter, which is do an inability to think and a radical failure of what we commonly call conscience coincide. So she's obviously interested in conscience in relation to not thinking, thinking here meaning that reflexive, reflective ability uh, to think about ourselves, to be aware of and to monitor, um, to question ourselves. When I went with her, when she was defending her book, because it created a huge fuss, people were deeply upset at the idea that she could say that the evil of the Holocaust specifically was in any way banal. Um, So
1: hold on one second here. So you started your career as Hannah Arendt's assistant, correct, as a graduate student? Yes. And uh, she was defending this statement, uh, the banality of evil um while you were
2: working for her yes that was another part of the thing that you so nicely opened with and i didn't get to um i had um i had come to new york i'd been studying at berkeley doing my uh phd first in political science and then i changed to philosophy so i was i was in new york and i will skip over the details but i ended up being in Hannah Arendt's first graduate seminar when she came to teach at the graduate faculty uh, at the New School, which is a small group of about 12 people that she selected by interviewing us, Um, typical Hannah Arendt, they told her they would put in that seminar only the most advanced students, and she said, no, 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 she said, I will interview. So she interviewed us, (laughs) and she picked her group, Um, and we read some fascinating things. The course was uh, Political Experiences of the 20th Century. Fascinating. At the end of that course, um, she liked the paper that I had written and she asked me to be her teaching assistant. She was at that point beginning to, well, she had been for a while, but she was still defending the book, which is to say, speaking publicly, being available for questions, which were often very personal. People were, of course, hardly able to speak about. We're still in this. The long moment of saying the unthinkable, the unspeakable about the Holocaust It was not all that long afterwards. They were very upset about several things in her book, one of them being the notion of banality, of evil. And I was sitting in the back, listening, and both fascinated and troubled by the difficulty of comprehension on so many levels, and of course the personal attacks on on Hannah Arendt, and also recognizing how difficult this was for people. And it occurred to me that if maybe, maybe if she had spoken about the evil of banality, people would have been able to at least listen a little longer to try and understand what she was saying. Because, of course, evil is not banal. Um, by definition, evil is something that is beyond anything that we that we can be accustomed to. It's, it's so shocking that we can't just call it bad. It has to be evil. And it moves into things where we we don't know what to say about it.
1: So you're saying a lot of critics were, let's say, morally offended by this, even the notion that evil, especially at the level of a Holocaust, could be boring and banal. Yes. In its nature.
2: Yes. Even though
1: her research, um, painstaking research, uh, going to the trials, led to very banal people doing very banal things.
2: This is true, and as a matter of fact, Hansa, this is still going on. Not, I think it was, what, several months ago, no more than probably four or five, there was another attack on Hannah Arendt, published, Alan Dershowitz, actually, saying she's flat wrong. It was outrageous. It's still outrageous that she could say that Eichmann was in any way banal, that what he was was a vicious anti-Semite, and we should never say that he's anything other than a monster. It, so this is, people are still intensely, I'd say resistant, but that's not fair because they're not just resisting, they disagree with with her premise.
1: So in your view, what's the danger of that? What's the danger in calling Eichmann a vicious anti-Semite monster if in fact his actions, you know, make him one in a lot of ways?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, we can say the actions are. Of course, indubitably. The mystery is how can, in this case, one person um, who seemed not to be more than usually (laughs) anti-Semitic and uh, hate-filled, how could he have done such monstrous things? The danger, to my mind, and after the great deal of reading and research that I did trying to understand, for myself, the evil banality, what it was in banality that enables these terrible deeds, if indeed it does, I wanted to rethink that through for myself, the danger in insisting that the people who do such deeds and enable such deeds, are part of such deeds, must be as monstrous as the deeds, is of course that it removes responsibility from the rest of us, that's one, and two, Here I have to make a distinction that's central to my book. As I was reading the reports, the interviews, the trial uh, testimonies, the biographies, histories, all of that, um, of people who did the deeds in the Holocaust and in Rwanda, that genocide, in enslaving people, selling slaves, working slaves, in international sex trafficking and so forth. I went beyond or aside from around also the Holocaust to look at these horrific instances of massive harm doing. And it dawned on me, I found myself with the concept, actually, it is very much the way it happened one day, you think, oh, here's what seems to be illuminating of what I've been immersed in. I found myself thinking that we think about there are extensive evils, you used the term earlier, Um, there are extensive evils, And there are intensive evils. There are also extensive goods and intensive goods. Extensive evils are the ones that take, I said this in a different context earlier, I think, Um, many, many people, they last for years, sometimes decades, sometimes millennia. If you think about sexual violations of the vulnerable, millennia, Um, and across most societies, if not all, they are indeed extensive. Um, Intensive Evils are the ones that happen in a burst of hatred, of viciousness, of craziness, of a sort of display of power. Um, They happen. They're over. Everybody around says, oh, my goodness, that was entirely abnormal. It doesn't happen here. Um, And people go on with an ordinary life that has been violated by these acts. With the extensive evils, what people are doing that enable and the perpetrators are doing and there are a lot of perpetrators it takes a lot of people to do these things a lot um, that's normalized that is ordinary uh, over time people are going about their lives and in my uh, book one of the quotes that I use because it was an illuminating to me that a man who trains torturers for the United States actually um, was saying You don't want people who enjoy it. Psychopaths are unreliable and tend to have bizarre other problems. The Nazis knew that too. Slave owners knew that too. You have to have reliable people making this horrific system work, doing the work of it. They have to show up. They have to do it well. They have to go home. They have to rest well enough, be calm enough, restore and renew enough to keep coming back and doing it over and over and over again. So with these two kinds of evil, I realize we have a picture of evildoers that works for the of evil, possession, hatred of some kind of moral madness, literally madness or not, but moral madness. Certainly, that is as monstrous as it matches the deed. There's a kind of moral equivalency. When you go to the extensive evils, unfortunately, you're talking to people who under other circumstances would have been perfectly decent citizens. And the single thing that I found most in common across all of these instances, which is astonishing to me still, was what I called careerism, Um, which is to say people will be doing their jobs. They will be thinking about pay that they need, job that they need, having some status and standing and safety in their job, um, about how to please their superiors. Certainly about how to get promoted, get more money more standing. And that means they're paying no they're not being thoughtful about what they're doing. They are, I call these enclosures of mind. We move into them and we do sometimes horrible things because it's part of the job. This is the way people in Rwanda talked about what they did, still talking in some cases. Um, I've talked with people and there are interviews to, to this effect, people talked about doing their jobs. It feels almost impossible to wrap our minds around that because the moral equivalency is so violated.
1: This is really, I think, getting to the crux of what we're here to talk about today. And I think it's where, you know, your book, you know, you pick up where Hannah Arendt left off and you really investigate more recent genocides and sort of extensive evils and come up with this really clear distinction between intensive and extensive evil. Which I found—I've been using that lens ever since reading the book and finding it really interesting. So, when we think of evil, like you said, we usually think of intensive evil. Those are our serial killers. You know, this is a podcast, so I can tell you that maybe a majority of the most popular podcasts are—you know—their subject is intensive evils, so like one person mm-hmm. who's a monster who kills maybe tens of people. Mm-hmm. But your insight is that's actually not the more interesting and important to think about evil, because one person, one monster acting alone is lucky to kill, you know, tens of people. But to really pull off the hundreds of thousands or millions of, you know, hurt, suffering or dead, you need cooperating professionals and extensive evil, people who, you know, might not have hatred in their hearts, but just go along with it somehow. And that's really the topic you are more interested in.
2: That's, Absolutely right. I got completely fascinated trying to understand how this is possible. And I therefore immersed myself again in details and thinking around, about, and through these horrific harm doing is a phrase I keep coming back to. For example, when you think about slavery, we can picture Simon Legree, a, a, a horrible slave driver. We can picture sort of greedy slave hunters, people who enslave. We can we can do that. We have images in our mind when you think about it, a whole economy based on the enslavement of a, of human beings, or importantly, living around and benefiting from the forced labor, the uh, even deadly exploitative labor of human beings. With slavery. You had people building the slave ships, you have people sailing the slave ships, you have people putting, um, offering the marketplaces, cleaning up the marketplaces afterwards, making money um, from the making money of the selling of slaves. You have transportation, you have people putting up flyers and doing various kinds of advertising for slave markets. You have all kinds of people making right. this thing possible.
1: A slave trade needs accountants. It needs metal workers making chains. It needs just a thousand and one menial jobs just to make it run.
2: It does. It does. Just one person can do terrible things. But when you get to these big ones, you have to have people doing their jobs all around. And the jobs are more than they entail doing the killing, doing the running, working of the slaves, doing the supervising of child labor so if somebody's there doing it that's true and somebody is profiting from it that's very true and there's circles of people you could sort of point at and say okay they're the they're the wicked ones they're making the money from it and these are you know their major instruments of doing this harm but as you were just saying so very well that's not enough to keep something going and uh, that is fundamental has been normalized across a whole society and you can you just did put some shape and content too we did together but you did it beautifully for what i'm trying to mean by careerism i talked about the trifecta of uh, greed status and careerism that there are people all around who are as we were saying they're thinking about doing their jobs making a little more money doing it selling a few more uh, leg irons for the slaves, making a better set of leg irons so they'll beat out their competitors and then they can go home and have greater status in their community, have a little more money. They are not thinking what they're doing. That's the life and death importance of thinking. They are not, we are often not thinking what we're doing. It comes very close to home. And that's very different from looking at those people that we want to say are the evil ones.
1: So it sounds like in our society, we tend not to hold, let's call them the accountants and metal workers of things like slavery accountable as much for a great evil. We say they were just doing their job, it was lawful, blah, blah, blah. But you're arguing, no, they were part of the, the machine, the system. We need to because ultimately millions of people suffered, were enslaved. It was a, it an extensive evil.
2: The accountant of Auschwitz was, was he died recently, I believe, and they, or... or... Um, and, you know, he was in the in the news. And that's exactly the kind of discussion that went on around it. People were saying he was just the accountant just doing his job. But at this point in relation to the genocide, the Nazi genocide of Jews um, and efforts on some other people like the Roma, too, um, were no longer willing to say just doing their jobs. We will say he was the accountant of Auschwitz, couldn't have run without him. And he knew what he was doing so we hold him responsible but we tend to limit it and we don't I mean it has to be something it's, it's in the past it is now internationally and uh, it's used the whole issue of the Holocaust importantly and must be used as a test of the conscience of humanity um, we moved had, realizing we had to think on that level and even make it legal for responsibility with these extensive evils. Um, But we don't carry it with us um, with regard to other great harms that are being done um, that we often are actually serving, having a very good job serving. Um, It's this is also in my book when Boeing accepted contracts for rendition flights to take people to other countries to be tortured in ways that were illegal in this country. This was in the news. it can be looked up the time. There was a report of one executive resigning. And there's another quote that I found in the study of this incident in which um, somebody is saying, you know, they pay very, very well, the feds. This is a lucrative contract. They just want the job done. Well, you know, take a deep breath here. We are watching people say, this is my job. It's going to get me promoted. I get good money for it. And what are they doing? And people didn't rise up and say, you're responsible.
1: So it seems your argument is to to really prevent extensive evils from happening because it seems that every generation has them. We need to, you know, rise up and encourage everyone to be a thinker that, you know, these things can't happen without the accountants and metal workers and, you know, middle managers and what have you and if people would just stop and think a lot of suffering could stop with them
2: it's one of the curious things of this is uh having done this work for so long um i was really thoroughly immersed in it still am in many ways um i'm looking now for extensive good though which is a different kind of quest um it's a very large question sort of Okay, now what? And you you have just raised it. If we can't learn to think of what we're doing, to pay attention, to be able to be startled back into thought by I'm you know, I'm just doing my job, I'm going along, but wait a minute, this is not my job. A line was just crossed. I will not cross that line. If we can't be Uh, startled into thought by something coming up that is different and that is asking us to do things that we do know perfectly well are wrong. Um, Extensive evils will indeed go on happening as they are right now as we speak, because people doing their jobs make it possible for these things to happen in the first place. The, The good news, bizarrely enough, there is definitely good news in this, which is if we won't do it, it can't happen. A small group of people cannot do that kind of harm, normalized harm to vast numbers of people. If we won't do it, it won't happen. The other thing that I will say too, that I am actually convinced that we stop extensive evils all the time. We just don't know it because it doesn't become part of history because we stopped it. Um, There are instances um, those are some of those are in the book too, and I'm, there are many more, where people just say no, no, we don't do that, and that just it even worked against the Nazis a couple of, of times. So if we if we say no, if we pay attention, um, and the other piece of that that should be mentioned is it has to be on time. That's part of the pay paying attention. Early extensive evils are quite easy to stop because they require so many people. And so many systems to be put in place and made to work. If people say no when it's relatively costless, and sometimes there's no risk at all if people just say no, particularly if large numbers of people just say, no, I don't do that, they can be stopped. It isn't the same as somebody going berserk in our midst when we had no idea that this was happening. We will have watched it happening. And then it gets to a point where you, It really is very dangerous indeed to say no, to resist, to try and do good even. People are are profoundly punished for doing good when extensive evil has set in. So it comes down to something on the one hand as simple and on the other hand as demanding, as paying attention. So that we can see when things are happening, so that we can reflect. Going back to the very beginning of our conversations, we can speak with other people. We can think about what's happening, and we can exercise our moral responsibility. Most people can do that. Given a chance, we just need to pay attention. And when you do that, this comes back to your work, Hansa. It's true. If we remember (laughs) to stop and think about what's happening, about what's around around us, about who and how we are in this world, in fact, life is intensified. It's not oh dear I have to be attentive all the time cuz something bad may be happening the more attentive we are in ordinary life the less banal it is the more interesting it is the fuller the more richer our lives from moment to moment so what we do to stop the most horrific harms is also a way of living more fully and more richly both alone and in together hey
0: in Let's take a break. Do you have a quote for us? Here's one by Sharon Salzberg. When fear dominates, our sense of possibility changes.
1: You know, when Sharon was on the podcast, which you can go back and listen to that episode, it was just so amazing to talk with her because she was literally one of the first people who taught meditation in America. And, you know, if you've ever even, you know, been in a Company or a school where they had you like slow down and pay attention to your breath like it really comes from the work of her and a few other pioneers who brought these mindfulness practices to America, so it's just you know it's a wild kind of story and when you think about the influence it's had on our culture since then, it's just amazing
0: we're so lucky to have her help us launch launch our We croak podcast last year and and we're so lucky to to have you the audience with us now. Hanzo, what are some ways that some of our listeners might be able to to support us today?
1: So you can leave a review on iTunes if you like the podcast so more people can find it. You can tell your friends, you can subscribe, and you can visit our Patreon page and support us because that actually really helps us in setting aside the crazy amounts of time it takes to manage an app and uh, create new episodes of this podcast.
0: Brilliant. Well, we'll see you all on Patreon, and now, back to the show.
1: Let's complexify this just a little bit uh, (laughs) with a contemporary example. Because it's one thing to talk about the Holocaust or slavery, which I feel like for most of our listeners feels like a long ago, far away event. But you brought up the example of Boeing which is an institution that is alive and well and kicking and very much in the news lately for a number of reasons, having to do with some failings. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, I'm glad Boeing exists. I take airplanes and I'm glad I can get to California in six hours and Europe in a certain amount of time. Um, You know, it seems like something we want to keep going is the ability to make airplanes. And I've been thinking about this recent news story of the 737 MAX jet, mm-hmm. um, which uh, two jet planes crashed in a system failure, uh, leading to the deaths of about 350 people, I think a little bit less. And uh, the, all the planes worldwide have been grounded. And as the news stories have been coming out, it looks like. They really did a rush job. Um, didn't put safety first uh, because they felt like there was a market imperative to be fast. They weren't transparent with pilots about what structural changes they'd made to the 737 model that made it fly differently, and it was a little bit of you know profit incentive careerism da, 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 that led to that. So I was wondering if you could just use that example with your lens of you know extensive evil, and then maybe. Give uh, some advice to uh, our accountant at Boeing somewhere who maybe never even had the opportunity to sign off or not on this project going forward, was just doing their job counting the numbers on what is, I think most people agree, a worthwhile American endeavor most of the time, and yet arguably had an extensive evil going on um, that uh, led to the deaths of several hundred people.
2: I think if you were going, if. To call um, this specific instance an extensive evil, I would have to derive from it the kinds of lack of attentiveness that we see there, which is to say, you named some of it, to put profit-seeking above the purpose, the function of what it is that you're doing. The purpose, you don't even have to go and get responsible about public safety. You can say to make a good airplane is to make an airplane that's not going to crash. That's, you can stay within the terms of your job. As stated and as people can have some pride do um, in their skill and capacity to do it and we can have gratitude to them for doing so. When making profit, yet to a level of being a primary motivation that swamps all others, um, As apparently in this instance, and then we generalize from Boeing across all kinds of large corporations and some small businesses and so forth, it touches most of our lives one way or another. This culture that puts profit making above all else, including doing your job simply well, not just adequately, but doing it well. When the profit drive takes you riskily beyond that, Volkswagen did the same thing, as we know with their emissions, cheating. Um, Something has gone very, very wrong in the culture. Same thing, uh, Wells Fargo has been spending huge amounts of money on ads anyhow, saying they've changed the climate from too much pressure on people to sell things that people didn't even need and charge them for things they didn't own and so forth. These are widespread seeds of extensive evil. That's where extensive evil gets into our lives when you when you get the a culture's tips towards that kind of an imbalance and people are only paying attention to i'm going to call it careerism breed status again to the trifecta they are within those boundaries and that's what they're paying attention to and that's what they're getting rewarded for and now and within those terms they get more money they get more status they get promoted um but also When the culture at large starts admiring winning in those terms, there are other ways to win, winning in those terms as if these were heroic virtues, as if these are people that the culture should take as their exemplars, to be as rich as possible, as powerful as possible, no matter what it takes, no matter what you do. The seeds of extensive evil have already sprouted. We had better be ever more alert. Fortunately, I think there are people are now becoming alert to this. That is very, very dangerous.
1: Yes, I think that is true. We see this in you know corporate U.S. America frequently. You brought up the Wells Fargo event, a number of ones where the culture tips into greed and really hurting people, you know, quite extensively. You know, like maybe it's not the Holocaust, but pu- putting someone in debt or certainly um, the people who died in a crash, that is an outcome that awful
2: it also lifts these events to um they get treated as when they get treated as just sort of one-time terrible error you know fix it we caught the malefactors and we don't generalize from that it's then we did across the culture we're doing the intensive thing again we're saying up malefactors here are some people who died this is terrible you know do things to them of course corporate america doesn't always do things to the ones who actually did it or they get bought off with huge payoffs and so forth. Um, but we pick out those people. If we don't see it as across the culture and something that has come to be admired, it's many more than the few people.
1: Okay, That so
2: attitude is killing a lot of people.
1: Let's imagine that accountant at Boeing right now. Let's right. speak directly to them. What are his or her hers options? What can they do to push against a culture that, took profit above human safety?
2: Fortunately, we do not often enough because it maybe doesn't get reported, but we know that it's not actually all that uncommon for people to to speak up, um, sometimes in private, to try and stop things that they see happening. Um, sometimes people will go ahead and risk their jobs because this is not acceptable. Sometimes people quit. If enough people did that, it would be very effective. If they just said, Again, as I keep saying, no, we won't do that. We won't keep your books if you're going to do that. And if lots of other people weren't waiting to take those jobs, because I presume they're reasonably good jobs. And anyhow, when you have an economy that's hyper competitive and you've got vast discrepancies in, in wealth, one of the things you're doing is producing people who desperately need jobs, which means that people are less likely to say no. So it gets articulated into a whole system in which harm can be done and no one instance is the harm alone. So I think the accountant or whoever else needs to be talking with other accountants in the company and other companies, reflecting on what they do, setting standards for what they do, taking pride in what they do. It's important work. We need it across the society. I, I gave the example in the book of the librarians who refused, under George W. Bush, the librarians refused to report what people were taking out from their library and reading. He asked them to, or Homeland Security did, and the librarians individually and collectively through their associations said, no, we don't do that, and it stopped. Uh, The teachers union in Norway, when the Nazis were occupying, the Nazis told the teachers that they had to teach a Nazified curriculum and the teachers union, which was very strong, and it's very prestigious profession in Norway teaching, very prestigious, we should follow that lead. <laughs> um, they said, no, we won't do that. And they they stood against, and a few people were sent off to camps. And I think all but one came back um, and the Nazis gave up. So there is something, you don't do it all by yourself. You talk to other people, you take pride in your profession. Um, and you understand how and why, just as you were saying about Boeing making the planes, this is good and important work and we should do it well. And you keep an eye out for when it begins to go wrong and you know, together you say, no, no, that's not the way we do accounting.
1: Yeah, and so it sounds like you know, first, there can be a slope here. Like first thing, just speak up. The more people who speak up, the more chance something has to not go forward in that way anymore. But then there's a slope in which the consequences of doing the right thing start to ratchet up. You know, let's say, no, this is a directive from the CEO. It has to go forward like this. And then the accountant who goes, well, this plane is going like, you know, three times as fast as any other plane in terms of its green light as any other. You know, what do you do? You can quit. You can be a whistleblower and go to the press. You know, but these, you know, you could potentially really hurt your career. Uh, Do you have any advice for doing the right thing when it hurts?
2: Yes, but I have to say, well, sort of. (laughs) One has always to be careful. People need to make their own choices. It's very important. Um, But I do have to say, if you don't have colleagues with whom you regularly uh, meet and discuss your profession and your work, and you are all by yourself, therefore, when you see something happening, uh, you're already a little too late i would go way back there one of i keep saying one of the key things is being on time you have to be prepared beforehand <laughs> not to be isolated like that which on the positive side as i was saying makes your job better uh, makes you work better we, everybody can be proud of their work so we have allowed most of the associations of working people on multiple levels to be undercut and uh, lessened over the last several decades. So we are not as prepared as we should be. This is very much too bad. You should have a union behind you or an organization, a professional association, so it's not just you. We have let this happen. Um, Well, it's been done, but we've also let it happen. And So this this is of concern. I always say, be be sure you have other people. Talk to other people first. You don't have to be the only one who speaks. See what other support you have. It doesn't have to be just people in the same job slot you are either. The more people who do it, who speak, and the earlier they do so, the the less risk, and of course, the greater chance of efficacy. If you do it by yourself and they make an example of what happens to people who speak up, we have also taught a lesson to other people not to.
1: This is a very good point, because your examples of the Norwegian teachers and the United States librarians are professional people who have a code, who talk about what their values are, who have a sort of strength of unity and are able to stand up to even a president or, you know, a conquering power. But if you're one accountant, it's already too late. You know, you can be used as an example uh, or something like that. So you're saying, you know, one, form associations, form a union, or like, you know, join the Accountants of America or whatever professional affiliation and make sure you talk about what your values are uh, in your profession and how you're going to stay true to them, that that is a sort of laying the groundwork to really have cover that you need not to be compromised in this way, should it ever happen that you're put in that place.
2: I think that's right. And when we, we were talking about the life and death importance of thinking of being thoughtful, that doesn't exclude thinking about our work. <laughs> um, and in a job holding society and increasingly job holding world where this is how people survive is through their jobs um of course we need to be thinking about our work and our jobs and we need again back to the beginning we need to speak with other people to think well ourselves we're not isolates it's it's helpful we don't have to agree and some people will make different choices but we need to be thinking about it you know i just realized
1: something that i had misunderstood in your work. And that comes down to the word thinking. Mm-hmm. I have, I think with a lot of Americans, this false idea that thinking is something I do alone. But it sounds like your argument is no, not at all. Thinking is something you do in conversation with other people. And that's how you create a thoughtful culture where we have protection from this uh, extensive problems happening in our society.
2: Yes, it's, 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 that's very important. This reflexive thinking. We can think about our own thinking um, we can think about what think what we are doing there are two of us in that <laughs> I am capable of saying who am I it's a very interesting question <laughs> you've got a split there so we're already not just one we can collapse into one we can find great bliss in being unself-conscious but the minute we start thinking we sort of divide <laughs> and we become aware not just awake but aware as they as they say that's one secondly we think with and around gesture, language, meanings. It's not empty. Mindfulness is uh, contemplation, stilling the mind. That's a different tradition and an invaluable one for which I have enormous respect. Very important to also be able to do that, to still the mind. That's not what I'm talking about at the moment. I think these two are complementary in the rich sense, actually, thoughtfulness and mindfulness, but they shouldn't be confused. Um, Thoughtfulness is awakening hearing different voices, hearing meanings in words. We come into thought with language through relation to others. If we're not in relation to others, we don't develop language well, and we never become able to think well. They go very closely. I don't want to reduce one to the other, but language is, uh, what do I want, the most sort of the fertile environment and stimulus (laughs) to thinking. And language is social. And for it to be meaningful, I don't mean necessarily fraught with great meaning. I mean, simply so people know what you mean. You speak with other people and they keep us thinking because I'll say something and you'll hear it the way you hear, hear it, like you just heard your own meaning of thinking now. Therefore, we're both thinking better. <laughs> we're, we've, we've become more aware and we have that kind of perspective on. And through life, we have what I call thinking friends. One of mine is Hannah Arendt, of course, evidently she's been in my mind ever since I actually when I read her book and then took her classes and then was her teaching assistant and so forth, spent so much time with her. She's always in my mind. I wouldn't begin to say, I think all by myself. And I've been thinking recently that we know this, just there's some things we already know. And in some ways I'm saying things we already know. When we say be thoughtful, you know, when your parent or whoever raises you says now now you're not being thoughtful that was thoughtless of you they usually mean that you didn't take somebody else into consideration you just went ahead and enjoyed your birthday present and you didn't say thank you you didn't appreciate what somebody did that kind of thought that takes other people into account first that they exist and second that they have a right to have some attention from you in some respect we already know that about thinking we, we say that we say be thoughtful and we also know that if somebody is being single minded, that can be a fine way to get things done. All of these things are complex. Ordinarily, things can be fine, but and can be fine with Boeing, can be fine with being single minded, can be fine with a wide variety of things that can also go bad. Um, so why we need to pay attention. Single mindedness no. is shutting down those other voices doing. It's an extreme careerism. He They will say, you know, she went after it single mindedly. She's not being thoughtful. She's liable to you know, roll right over other people. We may admire it because she gets there. She's a really single-minded. She's going to do it if she says she's going to do it. But we know there's at least collateral damage when we say that. We already know that when, you, when we shut down this sort of ability to move in and out and around, what we're thinking, awareness of ourselves, there are other people involved. And that in order to have our own richest, fullest, most meaningful life, Of course, we need to be in communication and some kind of communion with people. We're people who can be driven crazy by solitary confinement. That's one of the hardest punishments we have.
1: You know, I really like that you brought up this idea of mindfulness and sort of in the like listen to your breath meditation sense and how it's different from what you're talking about as a different kind of thoughtfulness. Uh, that we also need because, you know, corporate America has very much embraced meditation and mindfulness. And I think one, because it's great. I love it. I meditate every day. Um, But two, it has this capacity to make people still be able to function in really stressful environments that maybe we should change. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And so this could be kind of the antidote to that that by forming those professional associations and unions and you know cultures of thoughtfulness that we don't just try to keep situations going that really should be changed and mm-hmm. transformed.
2: When the mindfulness has, uh, I'm stopping myself here because I just sort of came up against here too, something can be wonderful, invaluable, and yes, it can be misused. If I say I'm sort of against something or other, even troubled by the banal, which is very dangerous indeed, if we didn't have banalities, we probably couldn't get through our days. We'd be exhausted. We need some autopilot. We need some things where somebody says, how are you, you say, fine, thank you, and go on about your grocery shopping. No, you can't be fully attentive every single moment, or most of the time you can't. So you said complexify earlier. Yes, indeed, we have to hold on to the subtleties and the nuances and, and relations. So with mindfulness, the ability to literally still our minds, not to have the chattering all the time, um, not to get caught. I mean, we can be enclosed in our own minds because we're just chattering away at ourselves and we're not open and attentive. To be able to take more than one deep breath, to work with our breath and still that means we can come back into the world and with others with an openness that we really must have if we're going to pay attention for the fullness of life, as well as to avoid the, the harm, thinking in this activity, thinking is very active. It's an activity of life, the way, the way action is. Thinking can clear our minds too, so that we come back, join our ordinary life, even its banal parts, more able to see and to consider and to reflect and make moral decisions about them to be, to do something, because thinking tends to dissolve concepts and generalizations.
1: Right. So. I guess if we're just doing meditating without thinking, it's not enough. And actually, you know, I've read some ancient Buddhist texts that warn about this idea. They say that, you know, the only there are only two forms of meditation that are beneficial in all circumstances and can never be misused, which means the rest can be. Mm-hmm. And those two are the cultivation of kindness and the recollection of death.
2: Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we've okay. had our warning. that's
1: that's very interesting um wow well this has been a really fun conversation and a a deep one and i think an important one you know i always i always you worry a little bit like okay we're going to talk about genocide like (laughs) we're really going to get in there um but i really find your ways of approaching these important subjects both clear and um really refreshing to have a lens that can more easily chop this stuff up, behave in a way we're proud of at the end of the day.
2: Which is an extraordinarily important way to feel. It really is, and we're much more likely, again, to have a fullness of life if we're feeling good about who we are and and how we are, and we're much more likely to be able to make good moral decisions when we need to, too.
1: So once again, the book is The Evil of Banality. On the Life and Death Importance of Thinking by Elizabeth Minnick. And where can people buy your book?
2: Uh, they can, I hope they have a local bookstore. <laughs> they can get it through. I'm very much in support of local bookstores. They can also go online to Roman and Littlefield and put in the title of the book or my name and they will, they'll get a link to buy it. Amazon has it. There are some independent bookstores that are also huge so that you can go online and order my book from. <laughs> All
1: right, lots of good suggestions. So I do recommend it. I think this one is really uh, interesting, while will change the way you look at Evil Forever. And thank you so much, Elizabeth Minnick, for being on our show today.
2: Thank you. This was a, It was a wonderful conversation. Your ability to hear and to read what someone is trying to mean is really... Very moving and helpful and means that we start thinking ourselves, talking to you. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for another enlightening episode. And remember, as Hansa just reminded us, there are only two forms of meditation that can never be misused. The cultivation of kindness and recollection of death.